Thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to speak. I'm really excited about this. Um, Bert and I began attending New Life 14 years ago on what happened to be Pastor Bo's last Sunday. And it was really wonderful to see a church sending off their pastor for all good reasons. And that summer, though, New Life didn't have a pastor, and so different members of the congregation took turns giving messages. And it was just so encouraging to feel the power of the Holy Spirit that was working through so many people in the church and not just through a single pastor. I benefited greatly from those sermons, and I'm hopeful to repay the favor today through my message. So we've been working on a summer series uh, called Any Questions, where we've been tackling difficult but practical questions that we have about the Bible and God, Jesus, the church, and so forth. And the question that I'd like to, uh, us to address today is, who am I? And some other questions that fall under this overarching theme are questions like, can you be both a scientist and a Christian? Are reason and faith polar opposites? Can you be both a Democrat and a Christian? Can you be both a Republican and a Christian? <laughs> right, let's try to tackle something easy, huh? All right, so um, let's see if I can get this to work too. This is all fancy. I, I teach small classes. This is, is exciting. All right, great. So um, to begin with, I'd like you to think about who you are, who you think that you are. So I want you to look in the, um, in the um, seat in front of you, right, uh, the little pocket in front of you, and you should be able to see a handout there where you can fill out 10 statements about who you are. I am blank. Fill in those 10 blanks. And these can be social or biological or cultural identities that you affiliate with. They can be professional affiliations. They can be emotions or hobbies. I want you to think about who you think that you are. And you won't have to show this to anyone else. You won't have to turn it in as homework. And I'll play a little song for you while you do that. Although my darkest hour had come, 
I'd like to um, introduce myself using these I am statements. Um, so I am a psychology professor at Skidmore. I'm chair of the psychology department. I'm happily married to my high school sweetheart. We just celebrated our 20-year anniversary. Um, I'm a mommy to five kids who are um, sitting through the service today. Um, thank you. <laughs> I'm a scientist. I study the visual and cognitive mechanisms underlying reading and language processing. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm an adult gymnast, and like other 42-year-olds, I like doing back handsprings and front flips. I'm obsessed with cemeteries. I like being in them. I like photographing them. I like researching them. I'm a lover of the national parks, and my family has been to several of them. I'm a people pleaser, and um, words of affirmation are definitely my love language. So when we're all done, tell me that I'm pretty and I did a good job. And I'm blessed and very, very thankful. So I believe that there are three questions that underlie our spiritual growth. These are the questions that we ask to develop as Christians, to become more Christ-like, and to tackle Bible study in a challenging way that is also applicable to our lives. And these are, who is God, who am I, and how should I live my life? And so with any Bible study, we can ask these three questions. We can ask what the passage says about who God is, who we are, and what we should do with our lives. And this morning, instead of tackling a specific Bible passage and exploring those three questions, we're going to take a more global look at just one of those questions, the question of who am I? Now, in doing so, we will also get hints of those other questions, too. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible have a lot to say about who we are. I like to collect these I am statements, and I've given you a good sampling of them in the back of the chairs, so you should be able to see that also. Okay, so you can pull those out, and if we had more time, what we would do is we would cut them up, and we would get into groups, and we would try to find underlying patterns. What I'd like to do just in the, for the sake of time this morning is share some underlying patterns that I've seen in doing this sort of activity. I do challenge you to do that activity, though. There may be patterns and themes that you notice that I failed to acknowledge. So let's go through these. Um, the first one here is, the Bible says that I am created by God and called to be his. And I would like for us to read aloud these together. I am created in the image of God. I am created to be the reflection of his glory. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am chosen before the creation of the world. I am called by name from before the foundation of the world. I am called by God. I am chosen and dearly loved. We are God's children. And why does God love you? Because you are his. In the book of Psalms, it says that before you were born, God created your inmost being and knit you together in your mother's womb. Can you picture God shaping you, carefully putting your pieces together? God made you just the way that you are so that you could best reflect his glory and beauty. God knows how many hairs there are on your head. He knows everything about you. He knows your name. He knows your every thought. He sees each tear that falls and hears you when you call. Second, I am being transformed. Please read with me. 
I am being transformed by the renewing of my mind. I am growing. I am being renewed daily. I am completed by God. I am confident that God will perfect the work he has begun in me. I am born again. I am a new creation. So God's not done with us. He is daily shaping us into the person that he desires us to be. This offers us encouragement because it tells us that God is still active in our lives. He didn't just make us and forget about us. We are being transformed. And this is in contrast to other worldviews. So, for example, deism is the belief in the existence of a supreme being, a creator, who does not intervene in the universe or interact with humankind. An analogy is often made of a clockmaker who creates and carefully designs a clock, that is, the universe, and then sets it into motion and steps back with no interaction with his creation. That would be a God who doesn't answer prayers. That would be a God who has stopped working in us and on our hearts. This is not our God. Third, I am blessed. I am provided for and getting all my needs met by Jesus. I am kept in safety wherever I go. I am secure. I am protected. I am not alone. I am blessed coming in and going out. I am blessed with all spiritual blessings. I am given God's glorious grace lavishly and without restriction. God cares for us and sees to it that our needs are met. This includes needs of safety as well as needs for companionship and friendship. And importantly, we are blessed with spiritual blessings too, including grace which covers over our sins. I am forgiven and free from sin and death. I am forgiven. I am holy and blameless. I am justified. I am no longer condemned. I am anointed. I am sanctified. I am dead to sin, but alive in Christ. I am free from death and sin, or sin and death. <laughs> I am redeemed from the curse of the law. I am set free. I am saved by grace through faith. So this is the best blessing of all. We are blessed with forgiveness. Though we deserve eternal punishment, we are blameless in God's eyes because Christ died for our sins. We are not slaves to sin and guilt here on earth, and we will enjoy eternal life. I am overcoming the devil and the world. I am daily overcoming the devil I am more than a conqueror. I am victorious. I am exercising my authority over the enemy. I am an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb and word of my testimony. I am persevering. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We've been talking about this the past two weeks. Life is tough and spiritual warfare doesn't help. We've learned a great deal about this from Pastor Nathan's sermons over the past two weeks. We will experience trials and temptations, but with Christ, we have the strength to overcome any of Satan's tricks or lies. Okay? I am part of God's family, the body of Christ. I am a child of God. 
I am included. I am adopted as his child. I am a member of God's household. I am united with other believers. I am a member of Christ's body. I am part of God's kingdom. I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I am qualified to share in his inheritance. I am an heir of eternal life. I am a citizen of heaven. So there are three aspects to this, and I have them um, separated as such. The first part is that we are important to God. Kyra was gone at Camp Cedarbrook this week, and it was the first time she had ever been away from our house, more than just a one-night sleepover. And we noticed. We'd get, we'd get in the car, and we'd say, where's Kyra? We'd sit down for dinner. Where's Kyra? We'd get ready for bed. Where's Kyra? When someone in your family is missing, you notice. And as members of God's family, he notices when we're missing. When we wander off and head down a road of shame or sin or selfishness, he says, where's Kyra? Where's Lloyd? Where's Sarah? Where's Riza? Where's Baudry? Where's Henry? Where's baby William? Seriously, where's baby William? <laughs> and he leaves the 99 other sheep and he comes looking for us. That's what it's like to be part of a family. You are loved with a reckless love of God. There's no shadow he won't light up, mountain he won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall he won't kick down, lie he won't tear down, coming after me. The second part of this is that we are connected to other believers, our fellow family members in Christ. As members of the body of Christ, we each have an important role. We've been blessed with spiritual gifts that we're expected to use so that the entire body functions smoothly. This week we're celebrating Independence Day, but God loves for his children to celebrate Interdependence Day, where we rely on each other and our strengths that were given to us by God to build each other up. Um, we've been learning about how everyone edifies every week and how we can and should use our unique gifts to lift up the body of Christ. The third part of this is that we are part of God's family, and as such, as his children, we are heirs with Christ, and we are able to partake in his inheritance. All right, and then one more. I am made for a mission. I am the salt and light of the earth. I am establishing God's word here on earth. I am observing and doing the Lord's commandments. I am a light to others and can exhibit goodness, righteousness, and truth. I am God's co-worker. I am his disciple. I am a minister of reconciliation. I am God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works. This here hints at that third question of spiritual growth that I mentioned. How should I live my life? We have work to do. God wants us to partner with him to build up the kingdom of God here on earth. He has called us to be the light in dark places and to be the hands and feet of Jesus until he returns. Now, I want to contrast this with another worldly stance on how we should view ourselves. And as a psychology professor, I'll pick on my own field for a moment. 
So humanistic psychology is a branch of psychological thinking founded by Carl Rogers in the 1950s. It states as one of its underlying principles that people are inherently good, and we have an innate need to make ourselves and the world better. It emphasizes that each person is capable of achieving their goals and their wishes and their desires. And at the center of this is establishing a high self-image or self-esteem. This means that we should learn to accept ourselves the way that we are. We are talented enough, we are smart enough, we are rich enough, and we are inherently good. And we feel good by doing good. Humanistic psychology tells us that we should all have a high self-esteem. We should all feel good about ourselves. And here's a self-help exercise um, that has been used by humanistic psychologists to improve your self-esteem. We won't read through these, um, but I want you to um, see what these look like. And so the activity would be to repeat these words over and over again while you visualize yourself being happy and succeeding, winning, being loved, laughing, and feeling good. Now look at these statements and think about humanistic psychology and its underlying principles. Do they differ in any way from the Christian or biblical perspective? So there are things here like, I'm a good person. Um, deep down, everyone is a good person, just like me. And that by doing good things, um, we can ourselves make ourselves even gooder, <laughs> right? Even, even happier, even better. Um, this worldly notion of self-esteem is frequently based on our feelings of worth in terms of our own skills, our achievements, our status, our financial resources, our physical attributes. When we find ourselves not measuring up to society's criteria for worth, we suffer serious consequences. Our self-esteem depreciates dramatically. And unfortunately, but realistically, we will never measure up to society's criteria. The truth is you will never be smart enough, you will never be rich enough, pretty enough, or popular enough for the world. While the world says we should accept ourselves as we are because we're okay the way we are, Christianity on the other hand says there's something wrong with us the way we are and we need a transformation before we start patting ourselves on the back. The popular view of self-esteem works just fine in a world without sin. But we don't live in a world without sin. We've all fallen short. We're all deserving of eternal punishment. We shouldn't be okay with ourselves the way we are because the way we are is sinful and sin makes God sad. If we are content with being okay the way we are and get our self-esteem from that, we are claiming that we have natural goodness and can be content and even save ourselves by our own power. This notion of self-esteem is actually self-pride. This exalted view of ourselves, this notion that we can do it all on our own, that we don't need God, is exactly what led to Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden. The reality is that we are sinful, fallen creatures. Romans 3 states, there is no one righteous, not even one, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And we see this sin of depravity in the hymns that we sing as well. 
Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A worm and a wretch. That's pretty low self-esteem. We can tend to take this view to the extreme, though, wallowing in the idea that we are sinful, fallen creatures. This extreme can lead us into thinking of ourselves as completely worthless. We look down upon ourselves. Some people even hate themselves. We know we've sinned, so we, so we despise ourselves as fallen creatures. Now, neither of these extremes are what our Creator intended. God doesn't want us to be prideful, nor does he want us to be depressed. We must come to understand that although we may be unclean and torn and sinful, the Creator offers us a way to be cleansed, renewed, and restored. When we sin, we ought to feel awful. If you violated someone else or yourself or God's standards, it's not surprising that you don't feel good about yourself. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you of your wrongdoing. In this case, you don't need to accept yourself. You need to repent of your sins, ask for forgiveness, and make things right. Yes, you are a sinner, but thank God that's not the end of the story. Now, there's a verse in the Bible that I think speaks wonderfully to who it is that we are in Christ. Any guesses as to which book of the Bible it's in? John, great book. No? Romans, not Romans. Philippians, those are excellent books, and you should read them this summer as part of your summer series uh, homework assignment. No, it's actually in the Song of Songs. Sometimes it's called the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Songs is um, this really interesting um, book of the Bible, a peculiar little Old Testament book that's intrigued biblical scholars for years. It's primarily a series of speeches showing the love story between a woman and her lover. Now, the Bible uses all kinds of writing styles. There's historical stories, there's genealogies, there's poetry, proverbs, songs, allegorical stories and symbolism, and letters. Even Jesus gave direct instruction through his Sermon on the Mount and also used figurative language through his parables. And there are two basic interpretations of the Song of Songs. There's a literal, natural way, which is to glorify married love. King Solomon wooing his bride, the Shulamite lover. But there's also a spiritual way, an allegorical way, which is King Jesus wooing his bride, the church. This interpretation regards the book as a symbolic story about our intimate, an unconditional, love-filled relationship with Christ. So this verse in Song of Songs reads, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. So we absolutely could interpret this verse literally. As a Shulamite woman, the lover was likely black or brown skin, which was rough and burned from the sun after years of working in the vineyards. But we could also interpret it allegorically. So some biblical scholars read the book 
as an allegory that is in, and interpret this verse to mean that she has reached the place on her spiritual journey where she acknowledges her sinful nature, her darkness, but also acknowledges that her love, King Jesus, finds beauty and worth in her despite her sin and darkness. And what about these tents of Kedar and the curtains of Solomon? Well, this parallel structure here refers back to the dark but lovely aspects of her. So the tents of Kedar. Who were the Kedarites? Well, Kedar was the second son of Ishmael. And who was Ishmael? Well, he was the son of Abraham and Hagar, right? So remember, God made his covenant with Abraham and Sarah and promised them that they would be the mother and father of all nations and that he would fulfill his purposes through their children. They laughed, didn't trust in God's plan, and devised a separate plan where Abraham would sleep with their Egyptian slave, Hagar. Their child was Ishmael, and his child was Kedar. So we're talking about the tents from the descendants born out of marriage, born from a distrust of God's plan. They are living in tents, so we know that the Kedarites were nomads, wanderers, homeless. These tents were covered in black goat's hairs. They would have been rough and scratchy and weather-stained. They would have been black and ugly. Historically, also, the dark tents of Kedar have represented the Gentile church, who, again, were not the chosen people. We are dark, like the tents of Kedar. But then we have the curtains of Solomon. Solomon spared no expense on the temple. These hangings would have been glorious, beautiful, rich, made of fine linen, embroidered, all bedazzled with precious stones and jewels. We are lovely, like the curtains of Solomon. So these last two clauses echo the first two. The lover was as black as the hairy, scratchy tents of the wild, wandering outcasts born out of sin and distrust. But as beautiful as the magnificent curtains in the glorious palace of Solomon. In the same way, believers of Christ are dark as being defiled and sinful by nature, but lovely as renewed by grace and made perfect through Christ alone. This is the paradox of grace. We are dark of heart, but yet still lovely to God. We are sinful, but unconditionally loved. The first step on our spiritual journey is accepting this. An ongoing step in our spiritual journey is maintaining an appropriate balance between these two characteristics. Focusing too much on our sinful nature isn't what God intends us to do. At the same time, God doesn't intend for us to forget about sin altogether and boast in our own successes and beauty. God wants us to remember that it's only through this relationship with him that we are able to be both dark and lovely. Apart from Jesus, we're just worms and wretches. But once we trust in Jesus, we become brand new creatures. If we're going to be mature believers, we must have a clear understanding of who we are in light of Christ. If I fail to accept my worminess, my wretchiness, and choose to think that I'm inherently good, 
and build up my self-esteem on an acceptance that I'm okay just the way that I am, then Christ died for nothing. So rather than focusing on self-esteem, which is a measure of how we feel about ourselves as a result of what we have done, we should instead be focusing on self-worth, which is a measure of how we feel about ourselves as the result of what Christ has done. Remember that as the book of Titus says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Apart from Christ, we aren't okay the way that we are. Apart from Christ, we aren't good. A high self-esteem without Christ is arrogance and pride. But because of Christ and his deep, deep love for us, we have self-worth. Whether you believe in God or not, the truth remains that he created you, he knows you, and he loves you. And whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not, the truth remains that he died for you. And for that reason alone, you have self-worth. Although you are sinful, the God of the universe loves you. Okay, this is great news. We're saved and released from the pressures of this world to be pretty enough and smart enough and strong enough. A nice feel-good sermon. And the people pleaser in me would love to just end there. But the teacher in me knows that I need to continue on into some more messier, uncomfortable stuff. So we've talked about how our identity in Christ changes the way that we view ourselves, but it also drastically alters the way that we view other people. Yes, Jesus died for you so you are worth something. Jesus also died for your best friend or your parents or your Sunday school teacher or camp counselor who led you to Christ, and so that person is worth something too. But Jesus also died for the thieves and the prostitutes the murderers, the rapists, the atheists, the child abusers, the adulterers. When my, son was Nathan, when my son Nathan was seven, I told him, God sent Jesus to die on the cross to take the punishment for everyone's sins. And he asked, even Canadians? <laughs> now, some of my best friends are Canadians, and some of God's best friends are Canadians. And this is funny when a seven-year-old says it, but as a young adult, I worked at a church camp with a bunch of other Christian young adults. One evening, we were having a discussion about biblical perspectives on homosexuality, and one guy said, look, if we aren't supposed to hate gays, who are we supposed to hate? His father was a pastor, and he himself became a pastor. I do hope and pray that God has softened his heart since then. But this example shows the power of hate and how hard barriers are to overcome. The point is this. Whoever you think of as the other, the outgroup, the alien, the Samaritan, the Canadian, God died for those people too. Those who are pro-life and those who are pro-choice the billionaires, and those on welfare, homophobic individuals, and LGBTQ friends, neighbors with Black Lives Matter flags, and those with back the blue signs, the millennials, Gen Xers, and boomers, 
wow, we have a lot of ways of separating ourselves. Jesus died for everyone, not just the Christians. They all mean enough to Jesus that he died for their sins too. He loves them just as much as he loves you, and you should love them too. He hates your sins just as much as he hates theirs. And if Jesus says that person has self-worth, we need to adopt that belief too and treat others as people of worth. We are not supposed to hate anyone. Finally, this new view of who you are also changes how we view our other group affiliations. There's another psychological principle that I'd like to introduce you to, and that is groupthink. Groupthink was studied by Irvin Janus in the early 1970s. It's the idea that when individuals are in a group, they fail to consider alternative outside perspectives because they are motivated to maintain a consensus, which typically results in less than desirable decisions and taking on more and more extreme positions. Many people exist within a bubble that echoes their own positions and ideas. And social media really exacerbates these effects of groupthink because we only friend and follow people that think similarly to us. And when you think about it, the entire New Testament stories teach us about the dangers of groupthink. It tells us of a story of a people group, the Israelites, who believe that they've completely understood the scriptures, who God is, and what they should do in their lives. When a prophet, who was Jesus, God himself, shows up and tells them otherwise, they kill him, fully confident that they're correct in their thinking and what they've done. So we need to be cautious about falling into a trap of thinking that we have all the answers to our questions. That's why this most recent sermon series is so important. It calls us to ask challenging questions and explore the biblical interpretations, not relying on accepting a perceived, agreed-upon belief within our church. We should approach each of these questions with a sense of humility and hold our truths with both a sense of conviction and open hearts. It's completely natural to, to, to immediately dismiss an unfamiliar idea, even if it's right. It takes a lot of spiritual maturity to hear something that's contrary to what we already believe and say, let me think this through. But God calls us to think things through. In Matthew, the religious leaders asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are called to love the Lord with all of our minds. And so we need to be careful not to fall into the traps of groupthink. We are not called to identify wholeheartedly or mindlessly with any other social or cultural or political or biological or professional group. We are followers of Christ, not followers of Trump or followers of Biden or followers of Idea X or Theory Y. Our identity as a follower of Christ comes before all of those other affiliations and is the standard by which we test all other identities. We are called to worship the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. 
And this applies to the views and values that we hear about within our various political, professional, religious, and cultural groups. Not surprisingly, Jesus was a perfect example of this. He was never one to affiliate with political or religious parties. He didn't join the Zealots, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. Jesus only followed the governing body of the kingdom of heaven. And so the same should be true of us. We read in the book of Galatians, So in Christ Jesus, you, all, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus was all about breaking down walls and barriers among people, and we should be too. So as a psychology professor, I have to be able to test the views and theories to see whether they stand up to the truths that I read about in the Bible. Carl Rogers' humanistic view, where we are by default good, doesn't pass my test, because I know that we are sinful by nature and not worthy outside of Jesus. My group membership as a psychologist or a woman or a white person, or an American, can never come before my group membership as a follower of Jesus. Let me say that again. Our group memberships can never come before our group membership as a follower of Jesus. We have to be willing to engage with biblical scripture, practice a prayerful life, carefully discern truth, and be willing to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind being prepared to challenge groupthink and leave our other identities behind if they don't align with Christ's purposes. Now, I want to give you some time to write down 10 of the I am statements that I passed out earlier. Um, these might be 10 that are speaking to you either because you closely identify with them, you have them memorized by heart, or maybe you want to learn more about them and you struggle at this moment to fully believe them. And while you do that, I'll play you another song.
want to point something out. The first list that we made includes things that you believe but may or may not be true. The second list that you just made includes things that are true, but you may or may not believe them. They are biblical truths, and God greatly desires for you to see yourself in this light. You are dark, yet very, very lovely. And my prayer is that you come to believe this with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and that it changes the way that you not only see yourself, but also those around you.